Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th. And remember, we all flourish with joy. <laughs> this is Saturday Magazine. Maka is away, but he has chosen some of the top podcasts from 2023. You heard Zoe Daniel and Josh Burns before. Now we're going to be speaking with Emeritus Professor Stephen Schwartz about the US Supreme Court. Indeed you are. <clears throat> Excuse me, husky. That sounded very, very, you know, enticing, Ooh. Macca. Hang on, I'll try and do it again. <laughs> you are on Saturday Magazine, Joy 94.9, with uh, Fiona, and uh, Dave is on panel. Isaac is in the studio. Paul's out there doing something, waving furiously. Our next guest is uh, Professor Stephen Schwartz, and listeners will remember, I hope, we spoke to Stephen a while ago, and that podcast was very, very popular. We talked about the US Supreme Court's decision, known as uh, colloquially as the Harvard decision, which where the court held that race-based affirmative action programs in college administrations violated the Equal Protection Clause clause the 14th amendment in the u.s constitution we're going to talk about a whole lot of stuff because we've got Stephen for two segments good morning Stephen. how are you today uh good morning maca i've got the uh spring the spring allergies as well but oh, have you yeah but that's good because it means it's spring doesn't it? it's spring exactly spring has sprung i want to start off Stephen. um and for our listeners Stephen and i had a chat during during the week uh, as to where perhaps we might go with this discussion, um, the U.S. Supreme Court, by its by its nature, is the Supreme Court, the highest court in the U.S. And in Australia, the High Court is the highest court. The selection process for judges in the U.S. Stephen goes through the U.S. Senate, and it's actually not not to put too fine a word on it, it's an incredibly political process uh, as opposed to Australia where High Court judges are appointed by the Federal Attorney General. Now, no doubt there's a process the attorney goes through in discussing with his Cabinet colleagues uh, and recommendations are made by Cabinet, but at the end of the day, the Attorney General makes the decision. In the US, it's a very, very political process, isn't it? It is. It um, can sometimes turn into a, a circus. Um, the, I'm not an expert in constitutional law, so I'm talking from the point of view of a layman almost. Mm. Uh, but the words in the American Constitution is that the Supreme Court justices must be appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate, which has been taken to mean open hearings and discussions about the history and background of the um, candidates, and it often deteriorates into a political bunfight where it doesn't really matter who the candidate is, it's an opportunity for the opposing sides to have a go at each other. Um, our system is different, as you say, because the Attorney General doesn't need to consent, um, seek the advice of the Senate uh, or have any public meetings, so it's a more opaque system 
Um, I wouldn't be so naive as to believe that there's no politics involved um, because I would imagine that the selection of candidates still requires considerations such as balancing the states and balancing uh, diverse groups, but they're done outside of the public eye. Do you think... Look, my view, Stephen, is the US Supreme Court is now a very, very political institution. And I'm not just saying that because there are more conservatives there than progressives. I would have the same view if there were more progressives there than conservatives. I don't think it's finely balanced. I think it's it's clear that the majority of the Supreme Court justices are making decisions, they say, are based in law. But to me... A lot of them seem like they're based on their personal political beliefs. Is that a fair thing for me to say, or what? What do you say? Um, um, well, I think probably they are based on law, but um, law is interpreted yes. differently. Um, um, you know, our constitution is very much based on the U.S. Constitution, and um, we have a Senate and a House of Representatives. We have divisions of power, as you said. We have a High Court, um, and one of the interesting differences which I think goes to the point which I'm trying to make, um, is that we have separation of church and state in both constitutions, and it runs through the, for a lot of reasons, runs through the history of both countries. Uh, But that's interpreted differently in Australia to the way it is in America. So, for example, the American government cannot provide funds to parochial religious schools, whereas here in Australia we've taken the, the view that they can so long as they are balanced and provided to all religious schools. So the same wording and the same ideas are actually interpreted differently. Mm. Um, and I think that's possible in both the Australia and the US. And I think, you know, when we look at the political divide in America, and just imagine for a moment, Stephen, that there became another vacancy on the US Supreme Court. President Biden... He would uh, he would want to appoint a progressive justice. Can you imagine what the process would be uh, getting that that nominee confirmed by the Senate? It would be a circus, wouldn't it? It would, and it has been in the past uh, in both directions, of course. Um, so it's it, you get the same thing when a conservative president is in charge. Yeah. Um, the there's an argument and. As I said, it, they will pick, pick through the background of the, and qualifications of the people, but it's also an opportunity for them to the, the opposing parties to simply have a fight uh, and show off in public and try to win more votes or at least appeal to their constituents. So, yes, there's a, it's an overt political process. Maybe that's not what was actually originally intended. You could think that perhaps what was originally intended was a democratic process, where the people's representatives in the Senate had an opportunity to dis, you know, discuss who was going to be on the court. But it's deteriorated, as many political discussions have deteriorated in recent years into overt partisanship. Does it concern you, Stephen, that the, my words, the political politicalization of the court and a court that, you know, has the ability you know, to basically say, well, no, government, you've made that law. The House of Representatives passed it. The Senate have passed it. It's now law. We say it's unconstitutional and there's no 
there's no right of appeal. Does it concern you that the Supreme Court is making those sort of decisions and that they're making decisions that we want government to make, yet these these justices are not elected by the public and they're not accountable, they're appointed for life? Yes, well, that's, that's an argument that's been going on for 200 years isn't yeah. it, in America and probably here as well. Um, how much law can a court make? Uh, and I think nowadays in Australia, we would say that the conservative side of politics thinks the court is making too many laws, right? Uh, and that it should do fewer. But there is a slight difference, isn't it, in that uh, our uh, court interprets the common law, and, and uh, the, that goes back to ancient British traditions, whereas the American court is not so much concerned with that. Um, but that's just a technicality. I, I think whoever is in, whoever is on the receiving end is, uh, of the of the dis, uh, the decisions, and they don't like them, will complain, won't they? So, um, Stephen, we have to go to a quick break. We've got some more questions for you afterwards. So hold fire, listeners. We will be back. I'll in be here. a minute. Cheers. Stay with us. Hey, this is Ave Pugliali from the Victorian Greens. You are listening to Saturday Magazine on Joy 94.9. You're on Saturday Magazine, just as Ave said. We're pulling out all the politicians today. They're all there. They're all there. So we're in the second uh, segment of our chat with uh, Professor Stephen Schwartz. And we're talking about the, uh, the US Supreme Court. And Fiona, you had a, a question, Amy Comey. Barrett, if I get her name right, who was uh, uh, nominated by, by Trump, by Donald Trump, and you know managed to get through a Senate vote, was she was a crucial vote because the Supreme Court is nine. Mm. Um, you need five, mm. you know, to win. Well, and of course, the first thing that comes to my mind when you talk about the U.S. Supreme Court is uh, is when uh, Amy Comey Barrett was on. It was the the beginning of the Ro- overturning of Roe versus Wade, which is when I think of the U.S. Supreme Court, I just think how could this possibly be, um, you know, a, a, a proper. A, not a proper court, but of course it is. But, you know, how it can be so heavily weighted. You know, Trump puts her in and then the next thing we know is we have that overturning of this incredibly mm. significant um, uh, legislation. And uh, so, Stephen, what do you see when things like that happen? I mean, how can you possibly have faith in, in a Supreme Court? when it goes, yeah, it goes back to, I think, Mecca's original opening question. Um, thing, very few things are improved by politicizing them, right? Yes. Um, and the American system is highly politicized. And believe it or not, it's not just, it's even more highly politicized at the state level in which most judges are actually elected. Um, and they actually have to yes. run for office. And many of them run for office on a, a party political basis. And um, you see these bizarre things, a billboard once um, in Florida, so, um, where a guy said his name was Maximum Bob. He was running for a, a court job, you know, and the idea is vote for Maximum Bob because he always gives the maximum sentence, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's... Um, it's yeah, it, it talk, maximum it, it's Bob. Oh, no, it's hilarious, but it's, it's not. It's, we're very lucky we don't have anywhere near the degree of politi- politicization that they do uh, in their legal system, and it's not normally the case that good things come out of that. Right. And, of course, we also have 
the situation where a number of Supreme Court justices are originalists. And originalists, they argue or they believe that the meaning of the constitutional text is fixed and it needs to be interpreted absolutely literally. So, you know, one of the arguments is, well, there was no provision or mention in the Constitution of abortion, so therefore it's not constitutional. It's not a constitutional right. I mean, do you often... Well, yeah, well, they've got the Bill of Rights, don't they? Yeah. And, and that's one of the discussions always about Bills of Rights, that once you enumerate them, it seems to suggest that you don't have any other. Um, and one, one line of um, argument against Australia having a Bill of Rights is exactly that, that it seems to, it seems to limit rights to whatever is in the, in the, in the writing. Um, and we, of course, have a lot more freedom that way because we don't have it. On the other hand, we don't have a Bill of Rights, so we don't have anywhere near the rights to free speech, for example, that the Americans have. Can I ask you, Stephen, do you, if you were an American, would you have faith in the Supreme Court, in the decisions it makes, and in the ethics of the court? Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I, was raised, I was raised in America. Um, I, uh, I'm not sure I could really answer that. I think it would have to depend on the decision and, uh, you know, how overtly political the decision was. In, so uh, you were saying earlier that this case of Trump appointing a, a justice and then suddenly overturning a long-standing um, decision made by an earlier court, that's clearly a political decision, and you'd have to see it that way. Mm. Um, where, whereas there might be others where um, it would be more obvious, the legal, l legal reasoning that went into it. It's, America is a standout, isn't it, in abortion? It's not such a, an issue in most other countries. Most other countries have come to an understanding. I, I guess it's their um, religious and social history that makes it that way. And, you know, to the ethics question, I look at, um, you know, some of the actions of the judges. If you're a US government employee, there are certain rules that apply about gifts and about conflicts of interest and, you know, how much money you can earn outside your job. Uh, Supreme Court justices, really, the rules are not very strict and they apply them themselves. And you even have the situation... You know, where one justice uh, received a loan from a friend to buy a quarter of a million dollar mobile home. Um, you know, that, you know, they, they, they ride on billionaires' jets, you know, they do all sorts of things. And this worries me. One, that it's, it's only disclosed when, uh, someone like the New York Times or some other, other media or organizations investigate it. Their disclosure of their other activities is pretty limited. They, they, uh, when these things were were reported, oh yes, they were subsequently acknowledged, but they weren't reported when they happened or even in the next year. I mean, that really concerns me that that there isn't an over any sort of an oversight or uh, or requirement for them, you know, to disclose this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm as I said earlier, I'm not sure about the rules, but obviously there should be a rule about disclosure 
Um, but I'm assuming that that would go hand in hand also with recusing yourself from any discussion that um, you know might compromise you um, so that you wouldn't actually become involved in a, a decision that involves some friend of yours or somebody who you've done business with. Um, so clearly it has to start with disclosure and then follows by recusal. Well, you know, I could... Justice Clarence Thomas, his wife is uh, a well-known agitator, but also uh, a believer or, you know, doesn't think that what happened on the 6th of January in the inauguration year was anything to worry about, that she was she was paid nearly $700,000 by the Heritage Foundation. And the Heritage Foundation are bringing cases in the Supreme Court, and she works for them, and it's and she's his wife. Like, but it's not, not disclosed. Apparently nothing to see there. Nothing to see. Not going to pass the pub test, Becca. No, no. it's not. Um, I was going to ask you, Stephen, are you thinking that you will go to, there's a play on the life of Ruth, Ga- Ruth Bader Ginsburg mm. that is opening at the Sydney Theatre Company in uh, February of next year. Is that something that you I might... think it'd be great. Did you see the movie as well? No, I haven't seen the movie. I would love to yeah, see the movie. It, and I would it, love it, to get up to I Sydney to be the play. Similar. Yeah, no, it'll be great. Um, and the, um, the movie's good as well. Well, something to look forward to. Yeah. Now, I think we've got a topic yeah. change, haven't we? We have. And <laughs> we wanted to talk about, um, you know, the university system in Australia and education and, you know, the the US system is, is very different to Australia. And you've written a piece recently about the F word, Stephen. Do you want to tell us about <laughs> that? Yes, but just before you vis- your listeners get too shocked, the F word we're referring to is failure. <laughs> um, and this uh, attempt to eliminate failure from education, which may be self-defeating. Um, my, it began, I think, at the school system. And um, I, I used to be the chairman of the board of ACARA, which is the uh, organization responsible for the Australian curriculum and NAPLAN testing. Okay. And there's always pressure on, on the organization to have very low passing of, uh, for political reasons, you know, as you can imagine, nobody wants to see lots of kids fail. But you sometimes wonder now, and now that's being spread to universities, by the way, where um, the minister is saying that um, universities could be even fined if too many students fail. Um, you start to wonder whether this is actually self-defeating and whether is it true that failure is something we should try to wipe out or is it something you learn from uh, and that um, by overcoming failure you get self-confidence you get the opportunity to go another go is it are we really doing the right thing by trying to ensure that no student ever fails well i mean Stephen, in in high school or secondary school you still get you could still be failed in high school so wouldn't it feel a little bit wouldn't it be strange if you were you know, you'd you'd learn not you'd sort of learn to uh, learn from failure in in secondary school, and then you get to university, and all of a sudden you're getting clean sweep. I mean, there would surely be a disconnect between those two. Um, you know, because generally speaking, people go from secondary to university, so surely that would be a little bit odd. Everyone would be like, "Oh, get me to university where I can That's start right, failing." I where I can't fail. Yeah. 
Um, so you're, when you refer to failure, you are referring to the state examinations? Yes. Yeah, well, yeah. even, you know, when you submit an essay and you there get no a, an <laughs> F, <laughs> or F for fail. So when, yeah, when, well, failures are getting quite rare. So when we talk about this, Stephen, is it a factor that, you know, when the minister says, you know, perhaps the universities will be fined if they fail too many... Um, that seems really strange to me that the minister is saying, well, perhaps you should pass more people and perhaps you should pass more people and keep more students there because that generates more revenue and more income. And that, that, is that, do you ever think that's a, um, a, a factor? I don't think that's what he means. No, I think to be fair to him, I, I think he's, um, Responding to a higher than we have an increasing dropout rate. Yeah, and I think he's saying if you're going to admit students, then they're going to struggle. So your admissions process is taking in kids who need extra help, or students who need extra help. You should be providing the extra help. Uh, and if you're not providing the extra help, and people are dropping out for that reason, then you will will fine you for not doing so. Um, so it's kind of a challenge to the universities. Um, are you living up to what's actually a legal requirement of the university regulator that you are accepting students who are capable of completing their courses? Uh, and if you're do not doing that, if you're flouting that requirement, then I'm going to fine you. I think that's where he's coming from. You mean there's a regulator that regulates? <laughs> oh, yes, it's called the tertiary education. Well, I don't know how well it regulates, but it has rules. Uh, there's a quality assurance re regulator. Having been an academic for a long time, Stephen, what is the biggest change that you've observed uh, in a positive way and perhaps in a less positive way that you've observed of the university sector over all the years that you've been involved and, and been a player? I think universities are way better now than they were when I was young in terms of their attitudes, their social attitudes. Nobody today would imagine a university that would reject well, Jewish people or uh, women or you know various other groups. And um, there's a much fairer attitude, I think, towards access to higher education today than there would have been when I went to university. I mean, all those things existed when I went to university, um, and they don't exist anymore. So I would, I would say that they're more egalitarian and fairer, um, but they've also become, uh, you know, much, um, what's, I don't have the word, they've got a much wider range of students than they had in the past. Uh, and so we need to adjust our ideas about whether really a university education is actually necessary for all the jobs it's required for and whether we're really benefiting students by loading them with debt um, early in their lives. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.